once again, and uh, thanks for checking in with the Encore Podcast. Chris McCoy here, Gabby there. Hey, uh, we've got such a great interview with a guy most of you know, even if you're not fans of the Philadelphia Phillies, you know the Philly fanatic. But do you know the guy who was inside the costume and originated the persona of the Philly fanatic so many years ago? I didn't until we set up this interview. <laughs> to be fair to me, the costume changed hands. The character changed hands in 1994 before I was born. That's true. So, but this interview, I think, is going to be really great and really timely for the fact that the Phillies have 10 games left to go and have a one and a half game lead in the wild card. So I feel like we picked a great guest for this timing. Yeah. Unfortunately, Gabby. You know it in your heart of hearts, and so do I. The Phillies are not going. No, anywhere. no, we're not doing that. Yet. <laughs> we're okay. not doing All right. That. The, the man's name is Dave Raymond. He's more than just the originator of the Philly Fanatic, which you'll hear. So let's get to the interview next on the Encore Podcast. Dave Raymond, friend of the Fanatic. Oh, the heck with that. You know, Dave Raymond was and is to this day in my opinion the philly fanatic he's the guy that was there from day one from jump street and you know david such a kick to have you on the encore podcast thank you for taking the time to do this gabby and i are we're, we are tried and true lifetime phillies fans and even if we weren't we would know of you and that fellow that you created so many years ago so successfully could you take us back to the very beginning, first of all? Absolutely. First of all, uh, thank you so much, Chris and Gabby. Uh, you know, in this world, it's so hard to get together and exchange emails. And I just absolutely adore the podcast platform. It's really kept me connected through all of the pandemic. And now it's become so universal. It's, it's so wonderful that you included me. And, and I just love to have these conversations. The easiest way to describe what happened to me was just complete accidental uh, brilliance in terms of the people with in Philadelphia, just a few people in Philadelphia with the Phillies that believed that this thing actually might be a good idea. And I was young enough and stupid enough to say yes to this idea. And my dad was the one who really created the opportunity for me because I just grew up wanting to be my hero. And uh, Tubby Raymond was my daddy's head football coach at the University of Delaware was there for 50 years. Go Blue Hens. Yeah, go Blue Hens. They're 2-0 uh, and 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 looking good with the new coach, Ryan Carty, who was a longtime Delaware player for my dad. So, But I'm in that environment. I just, you know, that's all I want to do. I was a little kid and my dad was my hero. He was iconic in, in Delaware and he was inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame, considered one of the greatest coaches in the history of college football. And when I told him I wanted to coach after I was, you know, I was playing for him at Delaware and he said, I'll help you. But he knew something about me that I didn't even know at the time that I needed to be liked a lot. Being a head football coach, that's not one of the benefits, <laughs> you know, so you got to get over that. And, and he was concerned. He said, look, I'll help you. But he said, let me get you a job with the Phillies. And he knew the Carpenter family at the time. And he said, you'll never know who you might meet and what might happen. And then he also said, just put your head down and do anything they ask you to do. If you prove your value, and then, then that's how you can potentially uh, find a career with them. And uh, that was in 1976 when the All-Star Game, the Bicentennial, was in Philadelphia. How old were you, Dave? I was, I was 20 years old. I had two years to go. I, had to grad I wasn't going to graduate until, until 79. Actually, I should have graduated in 78, but I had to take a few more classes in 79. Uh, in 1976, when I started, I'm, I mean, Chris, two weeks of that. And I'm like, what? I can have a job, a career working for the Philadelphia Phillies. I mean, it, there was no sports marketing degree at that time. And, and I was in, and then I just realized that this was a two-year internship. So I had another year to go before I I finished school and um, I thought, gosh, the Phillies are going to forget about me. I, I had a blast. I had tons of work to do as an intern and I was cleaning toilets, but then taking the national anthem singer up to where they would get 
fed after they sang the national anthem and I was meeting the players and I, my head exploded every day being a sports fan, what that's like and meeting, you know, all the people that you watched and having relationships with them. And then, you know, I went back to school and early spring of 1978, I got a call at my fraternity, uh, Sigma Phi Epsilon, go speed dogs on the campus of university of Delaware. And that it was a Phillies calling Frank Sullivan, who was head of uh, promotions and game ops then and said, Hey, do you want your job back uh, this summer? You need to stay for all the games and we're going to pay you to stay for the games as well. And I'm like, uh, yeah, what do you want me to do? And I'm thinking, you know, show up at this time. Dude. And the answer was, we just need you to go to New York and get fitted for the costume. <laughs> I would, and I went, what, what costume? Like what mummers? I, you know, so, and he said, no, look, David, just go to New York. And, you know, that was the start of it. I, I it was um, unexpected. And again, uh, you know, I have to give my dad credit because he said, just do it, say yes to anything they ask you, you know, and away we go. So, it, and, and that was, there was a lot of anxiety and all kinds of other things that happened, but, you know, it was really, truly the brilliance of Bill Giles, um, who was the, you know, that this uh, amazing mind behind this. He was a firm believer in what I call the force that fun can be. Um, he was out of the box in that regard. He helped create the, the Astrodome before he came to Philadelphia. He was instrumental with creating a lot of those cool little Easter eggs uh, in that stadium that have become ubiquitous and all the other new environments that they're building today. And, and he just wasn't frightened of anything. He wasn't frightened of failure. He was actually thinking failure might be just as good. Um, and wow. So I learned from some, you know, Frank Sullivan, Bill Giles, uh, Larry Shank, all the folks that worked in uh, PR and, and uh, game ops and marketing. And it, it was just an absolute uh, as I call brilliant stupidity. Have, obviously they saw something in you, this 20 year old kid who was escorting uh, national anthem singers up to be fed after singing. Tell me about that. What did they see in you? How did they know that you were the guy to, to bring this thing to life? How did they know? Were they just taking a chance or what? Well, do you want me to make it up or do you want me to tell you the truth? <laughs> How about a little bit of both? <laughs> well, okay. So Bill, when Bill's interviewed and, and we've stayed close, uh, I just actually interviewed Bill for a, a book I'm writing. And, um, and when I asked him to answer these questions, he said, oh, well, you were a smart ass in all of our gatherings, inner office gatherings. And I'm like, what? I go, I was Tubby's son, um, friend of ownership. I, I was scared to death to make a mistake in there. And then when you push me, he goes, no, I just, listen, you were gregarious. You were free to, you know, give your opinion. And, you know, we like that. And we thought, well, look, he, he looks, he looks fearless to do those things. So, but for me, I honestly was just dying to keep this job. I would have done anything that they asked me to do. And I wasn't really paying attention to what this meant or what it looked like on paper. And, you know, look, I, as a young kid, I was in, I was at Franklin Field when I saw them throw snowballs at Santa Claus. Uh, you know, Santa Claus did not have a very good day that day. And that's <laughs> in Philadelphia. You, if you show up and you don't do what you're expecting, man, they're going to let you know about it. And that's what I love about this city is that they are looking for excellence. And I had the heartbeat of Philadelphia fan right inside me. So I wasn't really frightened. I, I just got nervous when I really recognized that Mr. Jaws didn't necessarily have a plan moving forward. It was, well, we did all these things. We got the intern, as I said, was stupid enough to say yes. Um, he didn't tell me that a lot of the organization thought this was a horrible idea. I mean, fast forward 44 years later, gritty, that was the same thing. But, you know, they just, you know, the Flyers had people that believed this was the right thing to do. And, and then, and it was really from what I learned from Bill that helped you know, gritty becomes successful, but I, I just was frightened. And then when Bill saw that I was frightened, he said, your job is to go out and have fun. Um, and if you, if you don't have fun with this, the fanatic won't have that output. And if the fanatic's not funny, it's not going to work. You know, your job is to go out and do everything to entertain them, no matter what's going on on the field. And that requires you to have a good time. And then he edited, edited me very quickly when he saw my face light up because he goes, Oh, I just told a college student to have fun. And he said, G rated fun. And, and that was, um, you know, what, 40, 44 years later, yeah. over hundreds of millions, not just fans, hundreds of millions of people around the world, this little silly, wacky green character has driven happiness 
to those people and continues today because of the belief that fun was the only way this was going to really work. And I don't even think Bill understood what that power could turn into. And he, in that interview, when I asked him, why'd you tell me? He said, I couldn't think of anything else to tell you. But (laughs) but that's because it was natural to him. I mean, he, he grew up in Crosley Field with his dad running that ball club. And he told me that I was there till all hours of the night. His mom passed away when he was young. And he said, I distinctly remember one of the things I loved to do was, you know, the, the wheelchairs in those days were the, like the wicker wheelchairs. And we used it to help people who were not ambulatory get to their seats. And I used to sit on those and ride them down the ramps. (laughs) There's some brilliance in that, you know, in that play. And I mentioned to him, I really think the fact that you lost your mom at an early age, you found this environment to be your family. And you saw how, how important silliness and play and fun was. And he just absorbed that as a young kid naturally. And that was his output naturally, which is why it was so good because he didn't just believe it. It was in his DNA. Back at the beginning, you, I'm sure you knew of the San Diego chicken. Most of us did who had a sort of a national platform of sorts. It became, but I think mostly because it was such a mean, in my opinion, he was such a mean-spirited mascot who would do terrible things to people. And I, it, it just seems to me that maybe you took the San Diego chicken and got rid of the, uh, the crappy stuff. And like you said, had good, clean family fun with your entity. Is that oversimplifying it? No, no. I think it's, uh, it's spot on, Chris. And I listen, I, so uh, Ted Giannolis, who even today is still the chicken. What he did was not inspired by the team. It was really inspired by him and turned out to be his mother who fixed the costume and eventually changed it so much that he won the copyright away from the radio station. And the radio station was just doing a, a gig. Let's, you know, as radio stations do, we, we've got to just drive interest and, and listeners. And he was just one of the many things that they did. And it on the last day of, or last week of his assignment, which he just raised his hand in a broadcast class. I'll do that. And he was small. It fit fit the costume. And so really Ted did that. He created that personality that was a little acerbic and, and um, a little bit mean spirited, but you know, in San Diego, the the players used to tell me San San Diego that during those days was a military base with a beach. (laughs) And and so their entertainment at those ball games had to be a little, you know, R rated. And it worked, it fit, and he lived and breathed that. But what he did show baseball was how, how this type of uh, value-added entertainment could be as big as the game to some. And those some, those folks, were not coming to the games as much. So when they had something else to come for, slowly after the Fanatic, it became big business. And that's what Bill believed all the time, everything he did. And he would push the limit. I mean, you look back in today's world, uh, this would not be the thing that would fly is that he had the hot pants patrol, which were usherettes in little, you know, the hot pants shorts in the day with, with the high uh, knee high white boots, but then Mary Sue Stiles and, and Kathy, who were the two first ball girls, he, he made sure that they were, you know, a little prim and proper, but still he was working on, you know, a little bit of that connection to the male audience um, and then the fanatic was uh, going to be all G-rated entertainment, and it all worked. Um, there was a famous time when after, and the chicken was well known. The fanatic started to get well known, and they we invited the fanatic to come to Veteran Stadium to perform, and the media made it like a big showdown between the fanatic and the chicken, and we had a lot of fun. It's first time I met Ted. He did this routine that you could look up on. YouTube where he grabbed Mary Sue Styles and rolled around on top of her, pulled her on top of him. And it was, it was far beyond G rated and Bill stopped the show, dragged him up to his office and said, you're done. So that was, he was about two thirds of the way through the game. And that was it because, you know, he defiled Mary Sue. And that was, you know, something that, that Bill just wouldn't stand for. And uh, so you saw that, what you were talking about, you saw that difference between the characters and, you know, it just wasn't what we did and our fans related to it. And they, back in those days, they had never seen the chicken before, except on some highlight reels. And um, he was right for San Diego at the time. The fanatic was a perfect fit for Philadelphia and Bill, you know, with his guidance, he and I used to talk on the phone, the ground crew phone, which is 
right in the, there was a big opening behind home plate where the grand coups sat. It was a big plexiglass window. Sometimes they would, on big games, they'd put a camera down there, but there was a phone there, the phone would ring. They'd hand it to me and go, Mr. Giles wants to talk to you. And he said, hey, why don't you go run out and help the ground crew change the bases? Because it was all AstroTurf and it just had the, the bases in little dirt aprons. And when I ran out there, uh, one of the ground crew guys by accident tripped over me and fell. And people roared like, I don't know, like whatever comedic, like Chris Rock just did something <laughs> other than getting slapped. The place went nuts. And we said, hey, we got to do more of this. And that's what Bill said. Go do more of that. Go do more of this. And if I made a mistake, he never ever said, don't do that. He said, why did you do that? And then we would work it out together. And I'm thinking, this is my boss's boss. This is the guy in charge of running all of the business and, and marketing and PR operations at Phillies. And he wants my opinion. Hmm. And I was, and I was 20, you know, one going on 22. And I, in terms of enlightened leadership, which I talk to leaders all the time now, and I tell them that you have to put people, the right people in place and then give them credit and give them autonomy and let them go. And when they fail, say, good, good. And that's what Bill did. I can't say this enough about how amazing of a human being he is and what an incredible leader he was. And with the Phillies organization, he gets that credit. But I don't think the fans, you know, because he became an owner and, you know, of course in Philadelphia, you can't, you know, you can't love the owners all the time, but he, he just was a phenomenal influence on my life and, and so many others that we were lucky to have him in the Phillies uh, grew uh, in very, very large part because of his guidance. You brought a character to life who did not utilize language. Where did that come from? Well, that was like one of those things where I, I started to make, I was going to be a, a physical education teacher. I wasn't going to go into business. And frankly, I got a D on my first accounting exam and ran and changed my major without telling my father, who happened to be my academic advisor because I was playing football. He just had a group of players. And what are you doing? And I thought we were going to you know, get a business degree. And I said, I don't want to do it. I want to coach. You know, And that was what started all that. So, so I had no clue that I had any skills other than I was athletically inclined. There was nothing more physical demanding than what I did in that costume. And you know, I'm talking about two-day football practices back when they let you do that. And I was thinking I'll be fine. And, you know, five, 10 minutes into that costume, the first night, I'm like, oh my goodness. I, and so that, you know, so I had fitness, but fast forward, uh, you know, my mother uh, became a deaf woman in, in, when she was 29 years old. Then I was only three, you know, all I remember was my mother being a deaf woman. I had to be in front of her so she could read my lips and that, and, you know, I was constantly in front of her. Imagine you're three-year-old and you're told you have to be in front of your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I started ent entertaining her and my mom told me these stories, but she told me these stories because I had probably in the late eighties, I had a reporter say, do you think the fact that your mother was deaf helps you with this performance? And immediately I got offended because I thought he was using a narrative to kind of take advantage of something, you know, that was really hard for my mom. Although, you know, she never made it a handicap. That was wonderful about her. I kind of dismissed it. Didn't say any, I said, no, 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 that's it. And then I went home a week later and was talking to my mom and mentioned, she goes, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely, David. This is, you know, this, you've seen, you know, my students who are using American Sign Language, you just have all of that ability to do it. And I, I never, I mean, I learned American Sign Language a little bit, but I didn't need it because I was able to communicate with my mom. She had a hearing aid that amplified sound. So that's how she read lips and really did a great job. So uh, but I did follow it. And when my mom got sick, she decided she wasn't going to wear a hearing aid anymore. And that's when I learned how to sign. So there's no question. And, and nonverbal is a, is, I think is a misunderstood communication that we all do either well or not so well. And I had a high level. I, you talk about Malcolm Gladwell outliers. I had access and I had well over 10,000 hours of practice since I was three. And then when I got in the costume, I, I just didn't realize that this is what I was being asked to do. I just knew, you know, the credo of mascots was you can't speak. I just was doing it. I was just doing it because it was exactly what I did in front of my mom. And, uh, you know, when I became a teenager and my conversations with my mom were a little bit more intense because I, I want to know why she was taking the car away from me on a Friday night and I was supposed to take kids to the dance and I started getting animated and loud. And she had this hearing aid that was clipped right to her bra. And the on and off switch was right there. And, and I'd start arguing. She'd go, click, turn it on. And I said, 
I said, that's when the fanatics personality really was born, you know, because I had to do things silently to get her attention after that, to tell her how wrong she was, you know, that, that anger and that frustration and that animation is what I tapped into. Um, I tell people that when I was in costume and I teach, you know, I teach performance a lot and I'll say for me, and you have to figure out what yours will be, but mine was a narrative. There was an actual voice. Why I ought to, you know, there, there's that voice and sometimes very profane <laughs> because it got the profanity, like, like Tommy Lasorda and Larry Boa, who were experts at that. It inspires a physical response that in that costume, that response of complete and utter anger and profanity looked hysterical, you know, like, like the Tasmanian devil. And I realized when I would watch video clips, oh, that's really funny. And so the narrative was constantly silently going in my head, which then drove this nonverbal communication, which I was already good at doing. You know, I, I got to the point where, where if we were doing a commercial or something, they'd have a script and it says the fanatic does these things. And then I would say, well, what is the fanatic thinking during those that they're saying in the script? And I, and I really was able to communicate the script nonverbally. And it was just a natural skill set. So, so that's how it happened. I, and I'm just, you know, I said, I always talk about my dad being the hero, but stood on, like Newton says, I, I, we stood on the giant shoulders of, of Suzanne Raymond. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that my mom had uh, really inspired a skill set that I had no idea until 1978. So it seems like you really took a lot of the experiences, um, both good and, and maybe not so good going and making this personality of this mascot that, um, you know, the city was getting to know, the team was getting to know. I think the fanatic is pretty famous for some of his confrontations feels too strong, but maybe reactions from other teams or even our own players. I know you've spoken about this a little bit in your keynote, so I don't want to give too much away, but I was wondering if you could share with us maybe a couple of stories that you remember that you were like, oh, this is, you know, Maybe I'm leaning towards antagonizing these people, but the crowd loves it. So I need to like continue to incorporate this in. Oh, no, no question. Because look, it's you're wearing pinstripes. And this is what's wonderful in today's world. If you're wearing the Phillies pinstripes, doesn't matter what you identify as. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. Doesn't matter how tall or short or thin or heavy you are. You are family. And it's not just family, it's hugs, kisses, and embraces, and love because you're part of our family. That's a wonderful comment for connecting today is that if we could figure out a way to make everybody part of our family, like the human race, maybe, those things, all of our problems would honestly, in terms of connecting, would go away. Now, there's also the evil empire that's two (laughs) hours north of us, okay? And there's the evil empire that is to the far west of us that like, you're not a member of our crowd, sorry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so maybe we think of China, Russia, you know, North Korea, maybe, and then there is this joint effort to go, no, <laughs> not you. And so that is in every Phillies fan. So I had the uh, permission, uh, like a cartoon character, to go after them. Uh, and then what I would do after I went after them, which would be taking their hat, you know, whirly birding it out onto the field, then running to go get it and accidentally tripping in one of the dirt aprons and get dirt all over it. And then, you know, dust it off, run back up to the audience and put it back on their head. And then I would take their pocketbook. <laughs> you know, so, so there was, you know, so I could do those things in a, uh, in a negative way, but turn out to be like, it's okay. We're just kidding. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was just wonderful. So the whammy that, you know, there are a couple, the belly bump and the whammy are the things that the, the fanatic has been kind of known for. And those are dismissive nonverbal movements. And they're also, they are, um, you know, the special power of, of, you know, like a Jedi Knight, like I can throw the whammy at you. And the, and the beauty of that, when I was in costume, I became the fanatic that it, it over time, I developed this personality that I could just disappear into. And the whammy, I firmly believed it was going against the pitcher and he was going to walk somebody or somebody's going to lace a line driver, a home run. And I also some, probably most people wouldn't know this, but I'm telling you, there was a special power for the fanatic to determine the sex of a baby in the womb, because I'd have many pregnant women come up to me. And of course I would 
put my belly out and act like my back was hurting and they're nodding their head. Yeah, I get it. And then I would come over and, and do a little praying sign. And then I would lean the fanatic over to listen to her belly. And then I would go, I would make this movement for a girl or this movement for a guy. And then many times they go, Oh no, no, no. We know it's the opposite. And I go, "Mm -mm." and then I would get email. Well, not emails. I get letters back in the day or phone calls saying, you know, this happened in a game or at this appearance. And it turned out you were right. (laughs) So I believe the fanatic could actually tell the sex of an unborn child. (laughs) So I started getting empowered. Like I really, you know, became the superhero and and could do superhero things. So, uh, and I think the belief in that was, was part of the fun. Um, So yeah, I could be negative and tough. You know, I'd smash the novelty helmets of the opposing team, but then I would play their theme song to it. And I would, and if it was New York, I was dressed in a top hat and tails. And so it was, you know, yeah, we're going to smash you, but you know, we, we recognize, I also would smash apples when I was doing New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. So there'd be the novelty helmet and apple, novelty helmet and apple. And, and it was just, you know, the fans loved that because I was an outlet for their dislike of an opposition that, you know, was always bragging about how great their city was and that we were just, you know, the poor little sister to our South. And that that's insecurity that as Philadelphia fans, we wear on our sleeves, just like Boston does. I think the Mets really kind of have that similarity in against the Yankees. And um, that really inspires a tremendous bonding, um, competitive spirit. And, and I, those things are good. Those are healthy uh, mentally and physically for you. And to have an outlet in sports, it allows you to have the proper outlet for it so that in real life, you recognize that you know, that type of feeling towards somebody else is, is not healthy in that environment, but in this environment it is. So I, I got to really kind of use that power in the right way at the right time. Yeah. yeah and, I and- live in uh, Manhattan actually. So I'm constantly encountering Mets fans and it's just the best feeling in the world when I can find another Phillies fan here and we just like rag on them. <laughs> um, you know, it's like a really a common meeting point. And also Mr. Met is nothing compared to the fanatic. I feel very comfortable saying that I've been to the Mets games. He's not really bringing anything to the table. <laughs> well, the thing that's nice about Mr. Met, I'm a little bit partial to Mr. Met because he was inducted into the mascot Hall of Fame for one solid reason. As a Mets fan or a New York fan, you can be, uh, you know, you can bust on Mr. Met. But if somebody else does it, it's like, you know, like the gritty syndrome, like, oh, no, you, that Mr. Met's ours. And he does inspire that that love and affection, but also you know, they can, you know, they can make fun of him while he's there, but, but they truly believe in him when other people are making fun of him. So I, that, that's one of the beauties of a, of a character brand or a mascot is that they can inspire uh, that love and affection, even though they have flaws. <laughs> and he's just got a big head. What can we do? <laughs> he's got a head for baseball. kind of. <laughs> wait, wait, we need, can you put the sound effects in? <laughs> one of the things I think that I, Personally, I being in the stands back in the days when you're talking about when the Mets would would come to Veterans Stadium and, and you were the fanatic doing these great things and doing the things that we all wished we could do, uh, you know, with the Mets helmets and, you know, having fun with the players and things like that. What made it even sweeter was, as you know, Dave, the Mets fans would be there en masse at the Vet Stadium as well. So it was kind of like, yeah, see that? Take that. He's our guy. You know, he's our alter ego. I loved that. That was one of the things I loved about it. But you got to tell me, did Tommy Lasorda really hate you? Oh, I, listen, it's it's a long story that I that I will uh, condense for us in, in this forum. But no, no, frankly, he, he was a complex guy because everything he did uh, was centrally focused on motivating the people around him. And he had and my dad was a coach and. The thing I loved about Tommy, I saw him many times socially for years. We got to know each other in 1979 when the Fanatic went to Japan to represent Major League Baseball, when they had uh, a National League All-Star team together with an American League All-Star team. The best of the best of those days went to Japan for eight weeks, traveled all over Japan and played exhibition games in front of the fans. And he was the National League All-Star team's manager. And Chuck Tanner was the bench coach. And you know, Chuck Tanner came from... Um, Youngstown State and Youngstown State, we, we Delaware, the Blue Hens beat them for a national championship that year when we were over in Japan. And, um, you know, so there's all this great connected tissue. And Tommy saw how 
the fanatic would inspire the Japanese fans to really respond when I made fun of him because he was like a god over there. He represented Major League Baseball at the time. And in 79, you know, Major League Baseball was was the second coming for the Japanese fans because they love baseball so much. And when I would make fun of Tommy, there would be this, ooh, in the crowd. And then he'd turn around and play with me and the place went bananas. So we did that for eight weeks, got to know him. He found out I was signing baseballs where the manager was supposed to sign. And he caught me and yelled at me. Like, I mean, he really yelled at me. And then he started laughing and said, I'm just kidding you, but you've got to sign all the baseballs from now on for these eight weeks, which I found out was not easy to do. So we became, I thought, what I feel were friends. And then anybody you talked to that knew Tommy well, that played for him, said he had that dual personality where one one day you're his best friend, the next day you're like the enemy. And, you know, he did that to keep people on edge and to motivate them. And he used the fanatic, I think, to entertain his players because they would see him scream and holler and do this profanity-laced diatribe at the fanatic. And he really never called it the fanatic. He called it Dave every time. Dave. I'll kick your blah, blah, blah. And then the players be in the dugout and they would be laughing. And he saw that was great for his team to break the ice, to reduce tension. I really believe. And he did that in many different ways. So he was brilliant as a coach, but he could be a difficult guy, a complex guy to get to know. But he, every time I met him socially, how's your dad doing? Cause he was from Norristown and he knew my dad's reputation. And that just made me feel great. Here's Tommy Lasorda acknowledging dad and our family and, and Delaware and, so that was the way it was. But Johnny Marks is a broadcaster in Philadelphia. He does the afternoon show with Ike Reese on WIP. And they interviewed me after Tommy died. And I told the story to Johnny Marks. He said the best description ever and the simplest. He said, oh, so Tommy was OK with it until he wasn't. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Because on that particular night, he had been going on a on a diet that was sponsored by SlimFast against Oral Hershiser. He hadn't had pasta in a couple of weeks. He didn't bring his jersey, so I couldn't make fun of him. And I went and bought a jersey and had Lasorda embroidered on the back of it. So when I came out that night, well, he, how did he get the jersey? He's looking at his clubhouse guy in the dugout that I thought he was going to kill him. <laughs> and then he just lost it. He just, he lost it. And he was out there in front of 30,000 fans beating the ever-loving you-know-what out of a Muppet. <laughs> Only time my head almost came off. If you ever The video has been watched by millions of people. You Lasorda versus the Fanatic, first one that pops up with the LA broadcasters doing the feed, which was hysterical. <laughs> and they said, that's the fastest Tommy's moved all year. And he <laughs> whapped me over the head with the dummy. And you can see my head flop <laughs> to the ground. I had to grab it. And what you don't see is uh, I crawled into the photographer's booth to have to reconnect the Fanatic's head. And then I came back out and that's when you see him throw a baseball at me. And then, then the next inning, I'm up on, the, on our visitor's dugout with the dummy, like it's a puppet trying to eat pizza out of a box on my lap. And, <laughs> and he's like staring daggers. And the next day to Stan Hockman wrote an article calling us both babies. And, and I called Stan Hockman up. I said, Hey, who was doing their job and who was not. Doing their job? <laughs> and, and he hung up on me and I just figured here's a hall of hall of fame writer thinking his, his career had just gone in the toilet because he's got the fanatic calling him to complain. About an article. It was, it's one of my most fondest memories. I baseball is voided of, of personalities like Tommy. It's, you know, I don't want to sound like an old guy, but the analytics and the lack of personality has been kind of sucked out of the game. And, you know, mascots still reign and are still doing a wonderful job, but we Earl Weaver and Tommy Lasorda, uh, you know, and Larry Boa, Billy I Martin, in that. yeah, and you could we could name ten of them, right? And they're all gone, and and no one has replaced them. I nothing against Joe Girardi, but it, but he's the perfect example of someone who seems to always be under control. I, I think Rob Thompson does it in a in a quiet and and tough way. He had he exudes this confidence, but there's not a lot of great personalities anymore. It's just been weeded out of the game, and I I think. You know, you talk about the, you know, what the NFL does with dancing in the end zone and all the things that are designed for the gamer uh, generation. You know, baseball's got to really figure out a way to, you know, throw a little bit more of that fun into the game. And I don't know why it is, but, you know, I, I miss Tommy every day when I see a benign argument going on that lasts five seconds. And you see the manager going, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, there's very few in the face, throwing bases, kicking dirt on the plate. I mean, you talk about entertainment and being able to vicariously get your 
frustration out, there it is right there. And we just, we don't seem to have it. I know you just mentioned Joe Girardi as um, one of the personalities that's sort of morphed into the current day coach, but I mean, they go over to Rob Thompson and I swear to God, they could be winning like 10 in a row. And Rob Thompson is just like stone faced. And I'm like, are you having fun? Is anybody in this clubhouse? Like, I mean, obviously the players seem to be having fun, but like, he just seems so like, yep, you know, I'm here to do this job. Like, I'm, maybe I'm having fun. Maybe I'm not. It's He's you know, not really for you to know. Yeah. Come on. Give him <laughs> yeah, a break. I, I th- well, I also think that he's probably what the personality of that team needs. But um, I always do. So, so what we need to do just for fun sometime is they do the shot of Rob Thompson, wipe it away and put Jimmy Leland with a cigarette in his hand. <laughs> and he's eating that cigarette like it was all the way down to the last little nub and he's looking around he's like trying to you know you know those were the personalities that we've had and and i think you know uh from managerial standpoint um no one can argue with rob thompson's um demeanor and the effect he's had positively on this team and what joe what and i i know joe is a wonderful person i saw a very uh gut-wrenching picture that a friend of mine showed because they happened to be at the sock puppets game where his son was playing. And it was just a few days after he was let go. He's in the stands with a diet Coke watching his son play. And I just went, and it just hits you because, you know, I'm, I'm the son of a coach. I can't imagine what it would be like for the family to have your father fired. And he was just by all accounts, a a wonderful guy and a, and a great human being, but he was very nervous. And he was, he, as a catcher, my, my dad was a catcher, a captain of the Michigan baseball team and a, and a great catcher. And he, he said, it's, you know, it is like being a parent uh, as a catcher. You feel like you're need to be in charge of everything and you're constantly trying to figure out a way to do it. So, and I just think his personality wasn't right for this team, but as a Philadelphia fan, I said, we've got a Yankee running our baseball team <laughs> <laughs> and, and our, and our basketball coach who's still with us. You know, I just look at him as a Celtic just because he was with the Celtics for sure. <laughs> He's a Celtic. I get him out of here. It was a Trojan horse. We, so that's my own personal opinion without much knowledge. <laughs> um, so I want to make sure that we get to talking about what you're up to now. Um, so what led to the decision to hand over the costume? And once you had made that decision, were you sort of in the headspace where I kind of likened it prior to you signing on as um, like Barack Obama, like left office. And then he was like, I'm going on vacation for three months. Nobody asked me to do anything. And then like, I'll talk to you then. Um, or were you very much still wanting to be involved in the handover and you know, like, like what was going to come after you left? Well, I wish it was like Obama because I'd be in my compound in Martha Vineyard. And when you called me, I would go, I don't have time for you. <laughs> I've given my service to my country. No, I think my headspace was I wasn't I was not enjoying it the way it was when I started. I, I, I felt burnout. I had a young guy who is my backup for five years. He was a very close friend of mine. And I went, he's going to be a great successor, which he has proven to be because he's been there for, what, 28, 29 years since I left. He still is in costume. Tom Burgoyne, such a good friend of mine that we still get together uh, all the time and chat about performance and work and, and all that. I just wanted to do something else. It was my brother who encouraged me to become an entrepreneur. And that's that's what I did. And um, that got me involved in the corporate world. And and I, you know, I had lost my mother. Uh, my marriage had fallen apart, which which was when I thought you know, I, we talk about suicide today where there's people that are very, they're struggling in what we, in the science, what they call into hopelessness. And we don't know it. And in today's world, it's a little bit easier to talk about, but these people that make these decisions where you, where you say, and, and I'll use um, Chris's name as, as the placeholder for this. I can't believe Chris did that. Look at all Chris did in his life and what he's doing now. And how could he do that? Well, the answer is he wouldn't have done it if he was not into this area that can take all reason away and all you want to do is have things stop. And as I moved into the corporate world and I started meeting uh, leadership that were telling me that retention and employee morale and an ability to give people purpose and meaning in their job was so hard to do that I started recognizing, well, this is what the fanatic did for me during the worst times of my life. It, it has applications here. And that just developed from 94 through to about 2000. Five and I started a company with some co-founders called the Fund Department, and we were an employee engagement company. And it still is alive and well today, doing the same thing. And that's when leadership was telling me, "You have to tell our employees why we're going to take a break and enjoy ourselves." But I 
thought was very interesting. Like, why? Well, because, and I just had it all inside of me. And that, that developed into the power of fun. The, comp- the company was called the fun department and, it, and is today. And, and that's where the speaking really became my passion. And it's really what I believe in terms of faith. I believe this is why I, why I did everything I did was to be here and to give everybody uh, some simple steps that are, are difficult to engage daily, but that's the work you have to do to be able to kind of build this armor that's ready for the brutality of life. And then the, the beauty of my message is once you do that, you're like, yeah, bring it on, man. It's, it's this without strain, there's no strength. And when you overcome a challenge, you're like, I can do that. And, and you get stronger and the resilience is in, in this idea of understanding that the beauty of life is to have those challenges, not to be frightened of them. Actually look forward to them. As Jocko Willink says, who's one of the, you talk about a motivational guy, a team bruiser over on the West Coast, the most decorated Navy SEAL team. When he got done over in Afghanistan, he came back to train all of the Navy SEALs and implement a new training philosophy. And, and if you ever listen to his podcast, he goes, when people come to me and say they're, they got a problem, I go, good good because you're going to learn something. You, you get up, you dust yourself off, you recalibrate and you re-engage. I mean, I get, I get goosebumps and, you know, I'm a little softer than the team bruiser is, but it, but it's the same philosophy that you, you have a few things you can do daily and they're simple, but to change that habit loop and to change your brain chemistry, which is part of the science of why it's hard for us to accept fun as a force that you can go out and develop a process that when, and we're all going to live it. We're all, you know, this isn't as simple as say, yay, I'm going to be happy. And then the rest of the life, life is good. It Life kicks your butt and it's going to, and it will be multiple times. And you just, one great thing is good. Give it to me. I can take care of it. I know how to make the people around me feel better. And that's going to make me feel happier. And, and you just practice it daily. Speaking of life kicking your butt, the damn pandemic, it seems to me that happiness is something that is really in short supply in offices around the country these days. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, people don't get together anymore, or at least they didn't in those two years. Plus, you know, everybody saw each other like we're looking at each other now on Zoom. And it's just not quite the same experience. How did how did you handle that in your work? Well, first, I thought I was going to be out of work and I was going to go to McDonald's and flip burgers. But I heard a great podcast about, uh, you know, pushing the pause button and making decisions. And, and then we, we, uh, I got production help. Uh, I figured, you know, sports marketing, no, no fans are showing up and I'm a, a keynote speaker for live events and they were all shut down. So we switched to virtual and what I learned the most was about engagement. So from the pandemic, what we did was we opted in physical safety and we completely opted out of emotional safety. And it's a bigger issue. The, and, and the fact is that the, the science of positive psychology, those two are linked. Your health is better when you are happier. And some of the ways to be happier to express gratitude, be happy for the things that you have, not the things that you're hoping to have. See what other people have less than you and be grateful that that's not you and then help those people out and be kind. So expressing gratitude, being kind, try to be physically active, get as much sleep as you can. Those are some of the simple steps to build happiness, and it makes you less inclined for cardiovascular disease. It brings your blood pressure down. You know, heart attack and stroke can be lowered by just working at this. So when the pandemic hit, what I did was I started paying attention to how I could connect to people virtually like I would do live. Here's one of the techniques. When I started, I go, I know everybody complains about virtual, but look at it this way. You're running a team. And every single game that you play is a home game. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that help you win more? Yes. Well, virtual deliveries, you're in your home mostly, or you're in a space you're comfortable in. You click off the camera, you stand up and people can see your underwear and you got the real nice shirt on the top. And you're like, hey, I'm relaxed. It doesn't take you much to go from working to being free time and time that you can and relax. So I start, that's one of them. The other is, hey, everybody look at your, your phone lock screen. I pick up my phone lock screen and I'll, you can't see it, but it's, it's right there. It's my family at a Phillies game. So in, unless you're an absolute 100% curmudgeon, 
that picture on your lock screen brings you a moment of joy. So you go, I want you to look at that and think of your moment of joy, share it and get people involved. And then the, the formula that I've learned is if you have 30 minutes of virtual connection, 10 minutes or a third of that time must be designed to engage people. And that engagement needs to be designed to fit in your, your topic. People are going to be distracted in a live audience. People are multiply distracted on virtual. So you just have to continually ask them to think of something. Dream with me. What would it be like if? Write down these things. Right now, tell me one good thing that happened today. Write it down. And when you're virtual and you're asking them to do that, you're forcing them to connect. Reduce your amount of delivery by you know, 10%, so 15%. So if it's an hour talk, it's 40 minutes, um, maybe 45. And then you really have to focus on it. So that's, that's what I did. And then this idea of making sure people know that your health depends on having great relationships. And how do you have great relationships? You be kind. You reach out to people to say, how are you doing that weren't expecting it? You send a handwritten note. Um, these are things you can do where you don't have to be together that's going to inspire conversations virtually that are, are deep, emotional, and, and beneficial to both. And then as we're getting back, it's like throwing kerosene on a good combustible, building relationships, telling the people that you care the most, that you love them, going into office and the, the person that is always driving you crazy when they come up to you, don't ask them how they're doing, say, tell me something good and, and watch their face contort and they're non-verbally, they pause, okay, well, I'm breathing. Perfect, John, that's great. You're breathing, so remember that. You know, it's just all of my keynote are, are about, they're based on four simple steps, the F-U-N of fun, which all have a story and mean something important about valuing fun, and then the power of distracting fun, which is what saved my life. Uh, the fanatic was my distraction uh, that I was able to disappear into, and everybody else, you know, whether it's pulling weeds, or skydiving, everyone has something personal to them that makes them lose thought of themselves and time, puts them into a flow state. And those are things you just have to find to, you know, 15 minutes a day, you can do three of them. Get up in the morning before you feed, feed at the floor, you go, I'm able to get up and walk. That's a good start. Halfway through the day, when you're ready to scream, you close your eyes and remember a time in your life that was joyful and you really relive it for 90 seconds. And then at the end of the day, sit down by your bed, have a little piece of paper and write one good thing that happened during the day. If you did that every day for two weeks and you were feeling bad at the start of that, I guarantee you your mood would be elevated and raised to the point where you say, hey, I should do more of that. And it's just about deciding what those techniques are called intentional activities that you do. And, and in a nutshell, that my, my keynote is teaching people how to be happier, healthier, and more productive in their own way while recognizing that, that life is going to suck deeply at times. And that's when this is the most beneficial because you wouldn't think it that, that oh, well, fun works there. Yeah, we, we did funerals as the fanatic. We, we put the fun in funerals and it, and it worked. If it works at a funeral, then where else would it not work? That I was mean, very inspiring. I took off on a <laughs> rocket ship and just uh, dropped in a parachute in the Atlantic. I'm back. That's why you're here. <laughs> That's exactly why you're here, Dave. Um, so before we let you go, I just, um, I, I really wanted to ask you about the Kimmel segment. Um, I know that you, <laughs> I, I would just love to hear how that came to be. And also when I was watching it, I had no idea that you were involved in like the, would you call it the creation or like the marketing of Gritty? Also, Gritty is hilarious to me because it's exactly like you described earlier in the interview. Like, I remember the initial tweets going out being like, here's our new mascot. And everyone in Philadelphia was like, what? And then people on the internet were like, what is this? And we were like, hey, shut up. Like, this is our guy. Well, I'll I'll just start with what I what I do in my sports marketing uh, hat is inspire people to follow this same process. That's where this was all came from to value the fun and to understand the output is really going to be powerful for your brand and for your fans. And my job is to go in as I did with the flyers and they invited me in, they hired me and said, tell us what we need to do. And then it was a collaboration. Everyone put their ego aside and we collaborated and together that's how Gritty was created by some really bright and brilliant minds inside young, bright and brilliant minds inside the flyers that took what I said to heart 
which is what I'm always asking my audience to do. And they did it. And then look at that output, a billion dollar brand extension. You know, this concept of Kimmel came from, and this is the authentic part of this was, they saw a story in the New York Times Magazine about my work. And, I, and that's what I described. Kimmel's producers were searching for content based on the fact that Kimmel, the Jimmy Kimmel show was the sponsor of the LA Bowl. They're very funny, very creative. And they said, well, let's get the hero of happiness or the mascot whisperer. That's what it was. Let's get the mascot whisperer in to teach Jimmy how to create a mascot for the LA Bowl. And from the beginning, it was, and it took three months of discussions and copyright, you know, it, you know, all these agreements the lawyers had to get in. The whole idea was, like any other client, you're going to go tell Jimmy what you're doing, and he's going to share his concepts, and you're going to collaborate, and it's going to be in a in a uh, conference room. So, the most surreal, most amazing time in my life. Never saw Jimmy once. I thought it's I met Guillermo. We had breakfast, and then they put me in makeup. And my God, I was in makeup for like a half an hour, and I was frightened to look in the mirror. I thought I figured I was going to look like I was in drag. And suddenly I looked in the, in the mirror, I went to the woman who was doing, I said, can I bring you with me? <laughs> this looks amazing. So then they, then they, you know, they blocked me. It was a, it was a set. It wasn't a conference room. It was, I, they built a set and there are 30 people on set and the director's talking to me and you're going to sit here and Jimmy and Guillermo, Jimmy and Guillermo are going to come in. And I just kept waiting for Jimmy, who is a big baseball fan, big Mets fan, to stick his head in wherever I was in the green room, in makeup, say, hey, I just want to say hi, thanks. Nope. And, and I found out later it was designed that way. They did not want me to meet him. They wanted this to feel authentic and real. And as soon as the director said go and I opened the door, which they don't have in the piece and walked in and I shook his hand and said, hey, Jimmy, I'm Dave Raymond. I really am excited because you are serious about doing this. And then the rest of it was a you-know-what show of his brilliance. And I didn't know Guillermo was going to come in and interrupt us in costumes. And this is where you learn to play a straight man because we shot for almost 45 minutes and the whole bit was six or seven minutes. And they cut out every time that I made Jimmy laugh because we were having fun. So when he, he showed the mangy coyote with rabies <laughs> and I said, I said, that's great. Then he can bite the children. <laughs> and Jimmy started cracking up and said, yeah, I like the way you're thinking. And, and then there was, I forget what the other one was, but we did a couple of ones where, and they cut that out because they just needed me to be the straight guy, the, the expert playing that role. Well, and Jimmy had just things that were funny. Like when I asked him why he wanted to do it, he said, you know, so people will worship my legacy and, and then I can dominate the world. <laughs> You know, and I'm laughing and I'm trying to bite my lip. And so we get done and I had, you know, 15 minutes of a conversation with, with Jimmy Kimmel. And the hard thing to relate to is, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, you know, I love Hollywood. I'm a big fan of movies. And, and I'm, I had a little dose of Hollywood and the cameras are rolling. I sit down and I'm the first few minutes I'm going, oh my God, I'm talking to Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> and so it was, it was just, and to have my kids see it, it was just hysterical. And then of course I had to deny that I had anything to do with Jimmy Camel because in the shot, I said, I liked him the least. I liked the, I think I liked the, the cloud that was throwing up garbage and stuff. I said, I think that might be better for your brand. And uh, <laughs> so then he comes out in the bid and he throws up because, because Jimmy kept saying every character that he was showing me, he said, and he can throw up, you know, Barf, Bar, Barfield, the cat. And I've had so much fun recounting this because it, it's a time I'll never be able to replicate. It was just a surreal and a blast. And at the very end, when I was leaving, Guillermo just happened to be coming out. And I said, hey, and he came and said, oh, great job. And I gave him a hug. And I said, hey, listen, this little gig with Kimmel doesn't work out. I can make you a star as a performer. <laughs> he goes, it might just happen. <laughs> Give me your number. So it was, it was just a, a blast. Well, Dave Raymond, I, you are indeed the hero of happiness. And uh, I got to say that I know you like to, it, just in closing here, you like to ask other people, what do you do for fun? So I, I got to ask you, what do you do for fun? Uh, it's, it's simple. I have, a, I have a miracle morning, if anybody has, has studied that. And I get up about 545. I, I do a little bit of physical activity and then I can't wait. And I meditate for about 15 minutes. And then I take my rescue puppy, Flint, named after the town that my parents grew up in on a 30 minute walk. And he just goes in front of me and we have all kinds of different paths where we walk and he'll get to a, a fork in the path and he'll look back at me. 
And I'll go. And he just goes, white up. And I just follow him. And so for 30 minutes, Flint takes me on a walk. And I don't care whether it's raining, snowing. We, we go out. We're prepared for anything. And it is just an absolute joyful time for me. And it sets up, even in the most difficult times, it just sets me right up. And I thank goodness that we adopted him. He was eight weeks old when we got him. And, it, and he's been the most amazing thing for our family. But for me personally, it's, it's beyond my family. It's one of the best relationships I have. So it, it can be pets too that you connect with just as well. Thank you for asking. Well, Flint is one lucky dog, and uh, I think Gabby will agree with the both of us are very lucky to have had you uh, for the last hour or so, Dave Raymond. You are uh, one heck of a guy. I never heard the fanatic talk so much. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a revelation to me. I'm making it. I'm making up, Chris, for all that time that I was a mute. Continue with your good work, and uh, we have to ask you: Where can people follow you? Yeah, the uh, Instagram at the Dave Raymond Speaks, but also uh, DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. I, I'd love to hear. Easy way to connect to me. We've got a newsletter. I, I have a book, The Power of Fun, which is uh, really kind of a take-home version of my keynote. So please come and visit, just at least visit the newsletters for free. You get a free chapter of my book if you sign up. And I just want you guys to know what this message is about. That's, that's the most important thing to me. I think that uh, we need to have you on again sometime now that we've gotten all the fanatic stuff out of the way, the fans that we are of yours, to have you talk more in more detail about what you're doing these days. So uh, that's a very worthwhile enterprise. Thank you, Dave Raymond, for your time. Thank you guys for it bringing me in. I loved it. I, I, I love doing this and I appreciate you letting me going on and on and on. <laughs> Chris, if you had asked me before this interview, if I ever would have thought the gritty partially came from the mind of the Philly fanatic, I would have absolutely told you the answer is no, but it makes so much sense now that I think about it. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, the, when you put those two guys together, I'm talking about gritty and the Philly fanatic, it is definitely night and day. The thing about <laughs> gritty that strikes me, and I think the rest of the world as well, is that maniacal grin and those googly eyes. They just, I'm not sure what they say to this day. I'm not sure what they say, <laughs> no, really don't. but, uh, you know, Dave is, uh, he's, he's really a deep individual. I mean, he really is, uh, for someone who never spoke in costume, he had a lot to say and, uh, it was all really good stuff. And we so appreciate him taking the time to share with us this week on the podcast. I couldn't agree more. And I think his message about having fun and how he really used his job to cultivate the message that he spreads now and sort of the second half of his career, I would call it. I, I think it was also an interesting take because a lot of us don't really approach our jobs in a way where we think about how can we make this more fun? Usually we use hobbies for that sort of thing. So I think the fact that he took these experiences from a job um, that he really started pretty young in his life and carried him through some dark times, you know, as he mentioned and learned how to art. He went from the nonverbal communication of being, you know, the Philly fanatic to verbally communicating this message of having fun and, and finding happiness and how important those things are for us to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, quite a, quite a guy there and uh, you can check out his keynote and is it really a TED talk? I guess it is. It's very short, shorter than most TED talks, but it's all up there on YouTube. And his newsletter on his website, like you mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. So check it out when you can. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did uh, bringing it to you this week. By the way, just as we close here, there is a chance the Phillies will be back at Citizens Bank Park for the playoffs. A very slim chance, but there is a chance. I don't want to discount them. It just seems that they really let you down at the, the absolute worst possible times. It's great when we're on two sides, two different sides of an issue, though, because now when we come back in a week and I am a ball of stress <laughs> because <laughs> they're proving you wrong, it's going to feel great, right? So, <laughs> yeah, really. I'm going into this with, okay, I don't care. What happens, happens. Look, if they get in, if they get into the playoffs, I'm going to be there rooting my head off. I'm not expecting anything great from this team this year. They're still missing something. With all that money they spent in the offseason, they are still missing something. 
yeah, a completely healthy year. Everyone took a spin on the injured list. Yeah, but even look, they did their best while some of their stars were on the IR this year. That's when they played their best ball. So go figure. You know, a week from now, can't wait to hear what we have to say about this. <laughs> anyway, good get. Dave's tactics for, uh, for making myself happier, I think, at a certain point. So, <laughs> Yeah, Dave's probably so disappointed in me now from what I just said. Hey, <laughs> had to speak my truth. Standing in my truth. All right, so we'll see you next week for another Encore Pod.